Thank you, Rochelle, Lauren, Russ, Jeff. Appreciate the acoustic set this morning. My name is Craig. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Adventure in uh, Natomas, and glad to have you here on this Sunday. It is three days after Christmas, and I'm curious if I am the only person in the room who still has Christmases to come. How many of you still have a Christmas to celebrate? Okay, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one. Two of them down, one more to go. We're, we're almost there, last, uh, last Christmas today. Uh, I want to uh, give you an opportunity this morning, just a few days after Christmas, we're going to uh, kind of use a, a, a special song to assess uh, who had the most Christmassy Christmas. All right, now does anybody know what the Christmas song is? Who knows? Does anybody it's, it's really the title of the song is The Christmas Song, but nobody knows what that is. Anybody? Can you say, Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? I can't sing it as well as Nat King Cole. It's the song that made him famous. That is the Christmas song, and almost everybody knows the lyrics, so we're just going to try this out. Now, you might need your program to kind of keep a little tally, or you can re- keep a running score in your head. If you actually ate chestnuts roasted on an open fire, you get one point. If you roasted them yourself, you get three points. All right, now here's the, here's the freebie for everyone so that everyone who is here this morning gets at least one point. If Jack Frost was nipping at your nose, if you were cold at all during this Christmas season, you get... One point. There it is for everybody in the room. All you got to do is go outside this morning and you can get your one point. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. So if you heard a choir sing this Christmas season, you get one point. If you sang in the choir, you get three. Folks dressed up like Eskimos. I'm pretty sure that nobody dressed up like an Eskimo. But if you happen to, you get 10 points. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe will help to make the season bright. So if you had turkey on Christmas, not ham or prime rib or roast, you know, you had turkey, you get one point. But the mistletoe is the key here. If you have mistletoe hanging somewhere in your house, you get a point. And if you kissed someone under the mistletoe this Christmas season, you get three points. There must be mistletoe in the Dipmore's house. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. So if there were tiny tots in your house on Christmas Eve, then you get one point. But if they woke you up in the middle of the night because they wanted to open their gifts before you were ready to give, then you get five points. They know that Santa's on his way. He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh. So if someone got a gift from Santa in your house, you get one point. If you got a gift from Santa, you get three and every mother's child is going to, going to spy to see if reindeer really know how to fly. So if you have a reindeer decorating your yard, you get a point. Here's your chance to win the whole thing. If you actually went and put reindeer on your roof as a decoration, you get 10 points. All right. Add them up. Add them up in your head. How many of you have more than 10 points? Okay, there's the Christmassy Christmas people. There's a few. Okay, all right, who has more than 12 points over here? Anybody else? You got to raise your hand high. I only see who has more than 15 points. Nobody? Okay, how many do you have? 13. 
11. All right, well, you know what? We'll, we'll give you both the prize, all right? You have to catch. Here you go. Anybody want to guess what these are? That's right. And they have not been roasted yet, which means you're going to have to go home, get on Google, and find out how to actually roast them because I honestly have no idea at all. It is fascinating to me that this song, the Christmas song that we all hear, we all recognize, we all know the lyrics to, that kind of defines Christmas is about traditions that most of us have long forgotten. They aren't really part of how we celebrate Christmas, but yet somehow this song still represents this to us. But what is it that really makes Christmas? Is it chestnuts? Is it decorations? Is it mistletoe? Is it Santa and reindeer? Um, Is it gifts? I mean, what is it that really makes Christmas Christmas? I would suggest to you that the answer is love. And I know it's dangerous to make assumptions, but, but I would think of it this way, and I think that I'm, I'm fairly confident that I'm correct, that if your Christmas involved being with people that you love and that love you, that regardless of whether or not you had any of these traditions, Christmas was pretty good. But if you had Christmas without love, without people who love you, and without being able to love others, it wouldn't matter if you had all of these things. Christmas wouldn't be very good. What we all want, what we all really need is real love. But what is it? How do we get it? And how do we give it? The answer this morning comes from an ancient letter written by a man named John. John was one of the 12 men who did life with Jesus. We often call them Jesus' disciples. Jesus actually had many disciples, many people who followed him, but there were 12 who actually spent life with him. Amongst those 12, three of them had an especially close relationship with Jesus. Jesus invited them into some more personal moments in his life, and John was one of those three. John wrote about the things that he heard Jesus the things that he saw Jesus do, and something that we know of today as the gospel of John. It's included in the scripture. But later in John's life, almost 50 years after Jesus died, John wrote several letters, and those letters were saved, and we have those as a part of the Bible, part of scripture today as well. And we're going to be looking at one of those letters. You see, in that period of time in between, there was a lot that happened. Uh, About 30 years after Jesus died, uh, Nero became emperor in Rome, and he began to persecute Christians uh, in terrible, terrible ways. And after Nero, there was a new generation of people, many of whom, most of whom, did not see Jesus personally. They never heard him, never saw him personally. And in fact, most of the people who had actually seen Jesus in real life had either passed away or were killed during the persecution. But John was still alive. John was a survivor, a person who could still write about what he had actually seen and actually heard. And he wrote this letter to the next generation to remind them of who Jesus really was and the things that Jesus had really done. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you get your whole generations together at Christmas, right? Who is it that teaches who about Facebook? right? That, that's the next generation. But maybe you have a grandma or a grandpa that was alive, uh, say, during World War II or some other historical event. Who is it that teaches you about what life was really like in that time, right? That's the time that you listen to grandma and grandpa because they're the only ones that have actually experienced it. 
And that's what John is doing. He's the grandpa who's writing to the next generation to say, hey, this is what it was really like. This is what it means to really love. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. I'm going to be reading from the YouVersion app. Um, and if you want, um, you'll be able to follow along with the words on the screen behind me as well. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with words and speech, not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. From the beginning, the message has always been the same. That's what John says. The message has always been we should love one another. This was Jesus' message. It's the single idea that runs through everything that has been written for us about what Jesus taught. John wrote down Jesus' words this way. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John is writing what he heard Jesus teach. We should love one another. If only the world was the way it should be. Love is not the way of the world. What have you experienced? Just think about your own life. What have you experienced? Now, I hope that many of you have actually experienced God's love. That's something that you know and have experienced. I would hope that many of you have experienced the love of a neighbor or a friend, that you know what it is like to be loved. But there may be some of you here this morning who have not experienced much love in your lives, that the people who you would think should love you have not. And even those of us who have been loved have all had the experience of those who don't love us, of those who treat us in ways that are very unloving of those who have hated us. John writes and he says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Cain and Abel were the first children. He writes about them. Adam and Eve were the first people. They had two children, two boys, Cain and Abel. Those two boys brought gifts, offerings to give to God. God was pleased with one of their offering. He was not pleased with the other offering. And so Cain, the one who gave the offering that God was not pleased with, became so angry that he killed his brother Abel. Realize that this is the first four people that are alive. And we already have anger, hatred, and murder. And here we are, thousands of years later, billions of people later, and the world is still full of the same problems. Have you read any of the headlines in the last few weeks? 
Now, we live kind of isolated from all of this in a certain kind of way. Right? We, we hear about it through our screens, whether our little screens or our big screen TVs. We don't necessarily hear about it. You know, Ferguson, Missouri is a, a long ways away, and so is New York City. And a place like Peshawar, Pakistan is even further away, a place most of us have never been. Yet we hear about these horrible things that happen. But you know what I think is probably a, the bigger epidemic in most of our lives and in the places that most of us live? It's actually not the kind of outward hatred that murders. It's a different kind of problem. I would simply describe it as the epidemic of indifference or apathy. I like to call it the paradox of proximity, that the closer we tend to live to our neighbors, the less we actually even know who they are, much less what they need, much less in ways that we would actually interact with them in, in a loving way. You might have a neighbor right now in their life where they could really use love, and the issue isn't that you hate them. The issue is that you know so little about them that you wouldn't even know what kind of love was needed. We live in a world that is full of not only hatred, but apathy and indifference. The thing that we may need to do if we're going to experience real love is to forget how we have been loved. What the world teaches us is not God's kind of love. But John also tells us that real love is the evidence of real life. In verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Real love is the evidence that new life in God has begun. Any of you gardeners? Any of you grow vegetables? Okay. See, if you do, I'm just curious if, if I'm just completely... If you're a person who grows vegetables, if I gave you vegetable seeds, could you tell me what vegetable it was by looking at the seed? Does anybody... I know that I could, I, you could give me a whole handful of seeds, and they would all, I mean, I would know they look different, right? Some might be bigger and smaller and difficult, but I would have no ability to tell you what kind of thing was going to grow from that seed just by looking at it. But I would know how to find out what kind of seed it was. What would I do? I'd put it in the ground, and it would grow, and it would bear some kind of fruit or vegetable, and then I would say, oh, well, that was corn, and that was squash, and that was a, right? I could figure it out by what kind of fruit came out of the seed. We have a, a tree in our backyard. We moved a couple years ago, and all the landscape is there, and it's a dwarf tree. It's only about this big, but I know enough to know that it was a citrus tree. I could recognize that much. I thought it was an orange tree. We've had orange trees before, and so I thought, that kind of looks like an orange tree. I was out blowing off leaves, I think it was last weekend in the backyard trying to clean up the yard, and as I was working back there, I looked down and I noticed that on this little tree that for the last two years I thought was an orange tree was a piece of bright yellow fruit. It's not an orange tree, it's a lemon tree. How did I know that? By the fruit, right? And, and that's what John is saying to us here, that when we have God's life in us, the fruit that is demonstrated is the fruit of love, and it becomes the evidence, the way that we know that God's life is really in us. But what is real love? What is God's love? John tells us that love is something that you do. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Real love was something that God did. He sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Real love was something that Jesus did. No greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friends. But notice, maybe it's just me, I see in what John has written here in this simple statement, almost a a formula, if you will, for love. He says, if anyone has and sees someone else in need, I have, you need. And if I do something with what I have to meet your need, then I have loved you. And notice that there's no qualifications. John doesn't write and say, if anyone has a lot and gives, or if anyone has a little and gives. He just says, if anyone has, there's no qualification at all. Likewise, he doesn't qualify the need. He doesn't say, if he sees someone in desperate need, or horrible need, or a little bit of need, or a lot of need. He simply says, if you have, and someone else needs, then love is to give what you have to meet that person's need. Real love does simply because doing will benefit the other person. Let me share a couple things that I I think as examples of this. This one may seem a little odd to you, and some of you who are parents of kids in college will say, don't tell this story. I went to a very small Bible college a very long time ago, and there weren't a lot of students, and we all lived on campus together, and not very many of the students had cars. So, that would seem like a big deal to not have a car, except that most of what we needed was really close. You know, there, there was a great burrito place that was about a three-minute walk away, and so we'd go eat there. And there was a laundromat just around the corner that you could walk to, and a couple of banks. And, you know, so everything was really close. But every now and then, you wanted or needed something that you couldn't walk to, and so you would need a car. Well, the great thing was on this campus, that was never a problem. If you needed a car, all you had to do was walk down the hallway and knock on doors until you found somebody was home, and you would ask for their car, and they would say yes, and they would give you your keys, and you would take their car. Now, you think I'm kidding, but I am not kidding. You just, it didn't matter who you asked, it didn't even matter how well you knew them. The culture on campus was, if you needed a car and someone had one, you asked and they would give you their keys. It's kind of like, how many of you have those little key things in your house, you know, as you go out the door, you hang all your keys on, and you've got different cars and you grab the, I always thought that our dorm should just have one of those up front and everybody should just leave their keys there and then you could just grab somebody's keys and go and you wouldn't have to bother knocking on the doors. That's how easy it was. Now, A couple years into college, I got a car. It wasn't much of a car. My wife will laugh. It was a little red Ford Pinto. So, you know, I wasn't the most popular person to borrow a car from because people didn't necessarily want to be seen in that car. But I would do the same thing. If someone needed my car, I would just throw them. Well, I wouldn't throw them my keys because it, it had a manual transmission and something weird with a steering lock. And if you didn't do the clutch and the steering wheel and the shifter all in the right sequence, it wouldn't start. So I, would, I couldn't just throw people my keys. I always had to go out in the parking lot and make sure, you know, that they could start it two or three times in a row so they wouldn't get stuck somewhere. This was long before the days of cell phones. There was no way for them to call me and say, hey, I can't get your car started. We would just share 
what we have, right? Well, that's what John's saying. If someone has, I have a car, you need, you need to get somewhere, what do I do? I, I give what I have to meet your need. Love does simply because doing will benefit the other person. Now, for those of you who are concerned that on your way out the door, I'm going to ask you for your keys, let me give you another example. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually leaving here. I was on my way home, went down uh, Del Paso, which way? That way, I think, towards the, there's an Arco station at Del Paso in Northgate. I needed gas, so I pulled in, started pumping gas in my car. A gentleman came up to me and told me that he was trying to go see his mom who was sick and he didn't have money for gas. His gas tank was empty. I have no idea if that was really true. I understand that. But you know what? I've got a card in my pocket. I can put it in the machine. It'll fill his gas tank. I have. He needs. So... I filled his gas tank. Now, here's kind of, I will confess to you, here's the real struggle for me. I'm I'm fortunate, blessed, have many things from God. The cost of a tank of gas was not going to change my financial well-being even in the slightest. I I wasn't concerned about that. I was, however, looking at my watch because this was several weeks ago before the 49ers had lost all of these important football games. And I was actually hoping to get home and see the beginning of the game. And I was wondering how long this was going to take, not how much it was going to cost me. But even then, right, we have time, and sometimes what someone else needs is our time, and that's what we need to give them. Real love does simply because doing will benefit the other person. This is exactly the kind of love we are to have for others. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Real love starts by letting go of the hurts and the failures of the past. Now, it's common sense. If I were to say to you that I want to have brunch today at Bella Brew, which is maybe a mile that way, you would assume that I would need to leave here in order to go there, right? If I told you that I was going to go have lunch at Bella Brew and still be here with you, you would think I was crazy. It's not possible to be in two places at the same time. It's common sense. In fact, when we talk about making changes in our own lives and we talk about leaving the past behind, it's almost cliche, right? Oh, you need to leave the past behind. The problem is, even though it's common sense, even though it can be cliche, for many of us, It is also true that in order to get from where we are to where we want or need to be, the first thing that we have to do is leave the past behind. Maybe for you, that's a past that involves hurt. Maybe it's a past in which people that should have loved you didn't love you. And that makes it difficult for you to think about loving others. But the scripture tells us that love keeps no record of wrong. To begin to love is to leave behind the hurt of the past. Maybe your life includes trying to love people or loving people who didn't return that love, and those failures of the past keep you from wanting or even thinking about risking loving someone else. But the Scripture also tells us that love never gives up. Real love does simply because doing will benefit the other person. We start by letting go of the hurts and failures of the past and letting God change us first from the inside out. You are not going to leave here today having mastered 
real love. I am a teacher, not a miracle worker. If I were, I would have mastered this in my own life a long time ago. Do you have a relationship that is difficult? Maybe it's a family relationship, a spouse, a parent, a child, a brother, a sister. Maybe it's at work, uh, a boss, a, a, a co-worker, an employee. Maybe it's a neighbor. Uh, maybe it's someone at school, a, a teacher. Is there a difficult relationship in your life? Would that relationship improve if the other person would change? The answer we give is almost always yes. But real love means that we change first. If you have God's life in you, then you have God's love in you. And the ability to act in a loving way towards that person, towards even the most unlovable person, is not natural. It's not something that is naturally in us. It is something that is supernaturally possible because God's life is in us. And as God's life in us and God's love in us grows, we start letting our love be spoken by our hands and feet. Here's my challenge for you, my simple challenge for you. Today, this week, do something, anything, just something, solely and simply, because doing it will benefit the other person. And do it without words. And if you really want to make it kind of fun and a little more challenging and a little more interesting, do it in such a way that they don't even know that it was you who did it. No explanation, no justification, no words. Just let your actions speak for themselves. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Will you pray with me? Lord, I am grateful for the way that you have loved us, that we know that you gave your life as a gift to us, that we might have life, that we might have love. And I want to thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning that this would be a reminder to all of us of the great gift that we've received from you and the tremendous opportunity we have to pass that gift along, the gift of love. Lord, help us to see this week those who might be in need, to be aware of how what we have might be valuable to meet their need. And Lord, may we be willing to show your love to others by our actions by the things that we do, so that they would know that they are loved by us and most importantly by you. We pray in your name. Amen.